This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today we're doing something a little different. Instead of telling a single story from the Crosscut newsroom, we're peeling back the curtain on a massive multimedia project that's been in the works here for a while. In fact, this spring, it's in its second season. Black Arts Legacies is a series of written profiles, videos, photography, and a podcast, all highlighting the vital and ongoing role of Black artists and arts organizations in Seattle. Freelance writer and critic Jazz Kaimig joins me today to talk about their role in season two, writing a number of profiles of some of Seattle's most influential painters, poets, musicians, dancers, and directors. In this conversation, we highlight several specific artists and discuss the power and importance of the project as a whole. But there's a lot more to it all. You can learn more and RSVP for the free live event on June 15th at blackartslegacies.com. Yeah, so first off, go ahead and introduce yourself, your name and what you do in the world of arts and arts journalism. So my name is Jazz Kaimig. I am a Gemini, and I'm a Seattle resident. I am an arts writer and journalist in the city of Seattle, and I have been doing this job for maybe four years now, four and a half years. You know, I've seen a lot of change, you know, have seen a lot of things kind of go down. So I mostly focus on visual arts and um, music, film. Uh, I also really like stickers and queer queer subjects as well. So all the intersection of whatever kind of subjects that <laughs> that entails. Awesome. So turning to Black Arts Legacies, I was curious, how did you first get involved in the Black Arts Legacies project? Or maybe more importantly, why did you decide to get involved? Well, I mean, like, just for, for background, if folks, you know, maybe aren't as familiar with the project, Black Arts Legacies is an archive of video profiles, um, written profiles, photography and audio um, that kind of illuminates the wide variety of Black artists that have lived and are currently living in Seattle. How do I motivate people to follow their dreams because I'm following mine? This is its second year that it's been going on and uh, over the course of the past two years, um, me and several other writers have covered, I think, dozens of Black artists, you know, both living and in past. And it's really a cool way to preserve so many of these stories and and look at the ways Black artists have impacted Seattle culture, politics, and like Seattle identity more broadly. I, I grew up in the Seattle area, so it was really interesting to me to see the kind of list of, of names, and I didn't really recognize a whole lot of them, <laughs> you know, because I think... Uh, when people think about artists from Seattle and like specifically black artists, you know, there's like a few that really come to mind, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Quincy Jones, Ray Charles got his start here. Um, and so I think black arts legacies has been really important in like expanding that and giving so many other black artists that have lived and worked here their due, you know, and to kind of illuminate those stories that may not have gotten a lot of attention 
you know, before. And especially artists whose primary work has really stayed within the city because there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of artists obviously have had impacts outside of Seattle. But I think it's also really important to talk about folks that are really local um, in their impact because that, that doesn't mean that it's not as big. I was working at The Stranger for four and a half years and I recently left um, and this opportunity came up to write a couple profiles for this project. And I ended up writing 11. <laughs> um, so, which was really great, you know? Uh, and I was really excited to, it, it felt like an honor, really. As a Black person, as an arts writer in the city, as just like someone who lives in the city, I just felt really invested in these stories, you know, because, you know, I live in the Central District and I think in doing this project, I've been able to really think about the history of this neighborhood a lot differently and the history of the city a lot differently and a lot more like coherently. And it just makes even moving through Seattle a lot different because I feel like my eyes are kind of open to different stories, you know, that I, I hadn't really known before. Yeah. That really brings me to kind of what I was wondering about as an arts writer in Seattle. And as you say, someone who grew up in Seattle, I was curious if this project and your involvement in this project and your experience of writing all these profiles, if you stumbled across something that surprised you or something that you really didn't know and that strikes you as important to have known or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. I feel like as a journalist, like you kind of are really lucky to have this job that informs you as much as you inform other people, mm. you know, and I think so much of how I've thought about who I am as a person or community member or like a person of color or, you know, queer person like has been informed by the stories I was able to tell about other folks. And mm -hmm. I think the Black Arts Legacies Project is is no different. I think mostly what surprised me is, especially with the two people that I've written about who are our past, I was really surprised to not have ever heard about them, <laughs> you know? And I think it's because it seems like a lot of people have had such big impacts on the community and especially like the Black community in Seattle. And I think I was kind of shook at how your your story can kind of become more obscured. Um, and so I think that was really surprising to me is just how much I didn't know. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I've just been reflecting on is is how, yeah, what what are what all of our impacts will be after us, you know, or, or how our stories will be told after us. Absolutely. In some ways, this project seeks to highlight and preserve some of those stories that are a big part of Seattle's history, and yet many people might not know or remember. At least one artist I'm thinking of, Milt Simons, it seems like perhaps he didn't get the recognition that he deserved even when he was alive. Is that something that you felt as well based on your research? Um, I mean, yeah, book. totally. Yeah, I mean, I think Milt Simons is such a special case, you know, because, um, you know, he was a he was a painter, he was a musician, he he was so multi hyphenate. He studied dance, he uh, wrote poetry, like he had all of these, and I think he was also an amateur fencer, um, <laughs> well. and so he had all of these modes that he was really creating in, and you know, his kind of artistic 
time period was during like the 50s through the 70s. And I think his interest in kind of like Eastern philosophy, his type of knowledge of like German expressionism, like he had so many of these interesting kind of influences that I think, you know, at the time, a lot of the mainstream didn't really could couldn't really understand a black artist that had that type of breadth. And especially, you know, being black, uh, I think he was his work was really sidelined. And what really stood out to me was the way that he continued to believe in himself. And, you know, he opened two galleries. He started off like painting a lot more and then shifted more into music. And so I think for Mill, the way that he was able to pivot and continue to um, have space for other artists who are like him and he really encouraged other people to be experimental was really kind of uplifting because I think you know going into the archives and seeing how much he did I, I think I felt really angry <laughs> you, you know uh, at a certain point because it's like someone who had so much potential to be celebrated not getting celebrated and you know furthermore because you know, his work maybe wasn't picked up by mainstream galleries. Um, there was just this kind of lack of preservation of whether that's like images of his work or just just kind of people being able to contextualize it really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of your research and finding some of these archives, I mean, is that maybe part of why you're able to see some of his work, I guess? I mean, or how did you, what was your process like in terms of finding those stories? I spoke with David Martin, who is a um, curator at Cascadia Art Museum. And he also used to have a gallery down here in Seattle. His work and his curational focus is really on of color artists, uh, women artists. So artists like, you know, kind of that aren't old white guys, basically. Old straight white guys, I should say. And so he he actually hosted a show of Milts in 1999 and knew Marian Hansen, knew his widow uh, pretty well. And so I reached out to him and, and was able to learn so much just about Milt's life and Milt's artistic influences. And from there, I went into the UW archives. There was like a ton of like just Pacific Northwestern artists. Uh, he was in this huge this huge collection of them. And I was able to find like pictures from um, shows because he because because Milt was like a kind of abstract and figurative artist. And as a musician, a lot of his work focused on musicians. So there's a lot of like um, these really kind of like freaky images of 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 musicians with these like long bodies and long faces and um, they're they're playing cellos or they're carrying like a, a trumpet or, or just some sort of like wind instrument um, but I think it was really invaluable just to kind of be able to have those primary documents or even um, gallery announcements. And there was a lot of uh, newspaper clippings, you know, and, and just so seeing how people t- like talked about his work, even though there there wasn't like a ton, but there was definitely enough to kind of get a sense of where he was showing how he spoke about his work. I actually, uh, one of my favorite quotes that I have uh, of his in the in the piece that I wrote, I think it really speaks to how he was as an artist. He said, there's design in music, 
Color has wavelengths and speeds and so has sound. Middle C is a yellow, for instance. It goes up to infrared and ultraviolet. Tensions between colors are like tensions between sounds and shapes. There's a relationship really, but paradoxically not really, right? So, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's super artisty, um, but I think it really kind of speaks to how as an artist, he really saw this, this kind of synthesis between visual image, um, sound, uh, movement, right? Well, and his music is so good, too, by the way. Like, late 60s, early 70s, um, him and another Black artist that he was a frequent collaborator with, this guy named um, Paul Dusenberry, they formed this group called Jazz Is, which stood for Jazz Art Spontaneous Improvisational Synthesis. <laughs> long, long, long title. Um, but they, uh, they, they performed around the city. I believe that they also performed on the radio. And one of the few recordings that we have of this time is called Jazz's Spontaneous Improvisation. Um, and it kind of combined Indian classical music and American jazz. And it's, it's beautiful. Like it, it, there's tons of, um, Milt played the uh, vibraphone. And so there's this kind of like soupy, otherworldly, um, you know, sound to it. And it sounds fresh still. Speaking of other Renaissance people who do a million things, yeah, I also didn't know about a man named Nate Long, but he also kind of did everything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you you write he's a he was a director, producer, stuntman, community advocate, teacher, karate and judo black belt, and giant of Seattle's Central District. He probably did a thousand other things too, but like... oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Nate Long, like I think that was the profile I had the hardest time trying to edit down because there was just so much about him. Yeah, that was that was really fun for me to write. Also, because this is just sort of a side note, I love film. I love trying to watch like all the movies set or filmed here in Seattle. And prior to this, like several years ago, I saw this film called Scorchy. Meet Scorchy, also known as federal undercover agent Jackie Parker. It was like from the 70s. Um, and so and it was like set and shot around Seattle. It has Connie Stevens. Connie Stevens is Scorchy. It's super pulpy and, and, and really silly, but I think it really captures this, this era of um, Seattle. And I, so I've seen this movie like several times. I've loved it a lot. And once I took on this project and I got assigned to Nate Long, I was shocked because I found out that he was in that movie. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, and, and, you know, he was a huge teacher here. He got a lot of kids and especially black kids into the film industry, the TV industry. And so I think because of a lot of the connections that he had in Hollywood, he was like often cast in, in things or he tried to be cast and, uh, Scorchy was one of those, and so he—he's a cop character that kind of appears at the at the very beginning, and so that felt like a really kind of fun connection to make. I think this is also the profile that I've written where I had to like, like almost tell people that I couldn't interview them for for this project because once one person found out I was writing about Nate Long, I got texts, I got calls, I got so many people reaching out to me just 
wanting to talk about how uh, amazing Nate Long was as like a as a mentor. Um, he was a mentor to people like Steve Poole, who was like a longtime weatherman for Como, for um, former mayor Norm Rice, for arts advocate uh, Vivian Phillips, who is also kind of as a, a, a consultant on this project. So a lot of folks that have gone on to have these like hugely influential careers in not just media, but um, television, politics, the mayor's office, arts. Nate Long, he was born in Philly and he kind of immediately went into the army and he was shipped off to Japan, I think. And there he learned um, judo. And I, what I what I learned reading a really old profile of, of, of his is that he actually, while he was in Japan, he actually sparred with like he was on the team of like the Japanese like police judo squad or something like wow. he, so he would compete competitively with uh to the Japanese police officers which I thought was really cool wow uh and he worked for the military for several years I believe he was a sergeant he retired from the military after I believe 20 years so he was he was with the military for a long time and he was really into community and kind of building up the black community here in the central area and he opened a judo studio and so he he I found a lot of news articles talking about how he would kind of teach judo to kids as a way of you know after school or as a way of just kind of getting them into things that were more constructive you know during the late 60s when he was seeing a lot of when there, you know a lot of civil rights things were kind of going off and and seeing the assassination of people like Edwin T Pratt who was a civil rights leader here in the Seattle area and like Martin Luther King Jr, you know RFK all of those things and at this time also seeing the rise in the power of television right and TV news right and seeing the stories of black communities across the nation kind of unfold but not necessarily being told by black folks he was the type of guy who was just like, I don't know anything about TV. I don't know, you know, I don't know the first thing about it, but I'm going to teach myself and I'm going to teach other people, you know. And so that that's just his, you know, that kind of <laughs> that's a very specific and a very beautiful quality to have. Like and the way that he was able to scale up so fast, like he founded a production company called Oscar Oscar Productions and was able to bring in like teens and people in their early 20s and teach them the skills of, you know, cinematography, writing a script, putting together a program, producing. And eventually, I believe in 1970, he actually got, he was able to get a block of like an hour on Como and it was called Action Inner City. And that's where a lot of, a lot of people got their start, you know, and it was, it was youth telling stories about their community. So things like black Christmas traditions or interviewing people that had, you know, jobs in, in certain parts of the community or reporting on things like police brutality. And this this went on for years. And a lot of folks were able to kind of learn about and tell stories about the world through this this program. It touched a lot of people. You know, a lot of people went through that. And so that was really cool to see. To hear from from people that this man still had a really, you know, they they had they still had this admiration for this man that they hadn't seen, you know, maybe since they were like in their twenties, <laughs> you know, or, or their or their teens. I mean, as a journalist, I I find his story fascinating because 
it seems like a lot of the things that he was recognizing at the time around, um, you know, representation in media and narratives in media and the the idea that if we're going to have truth in journalism, we have to have communities telling the stories of their own communities and all of that. And that is a conversation we are having right now today. Yeah. Still all the time. And it is very much not solved. No, for sure. So I'm happy that that happened and also kind of sad that it didn't sort of stick around longer or in a more fundamental way. Well, and what's wild to me was like, there was so much written about him, I think, through the 80s. Because he was kind of a go-to guy to kind of talk about um, like black representation. Like he he was a big community figure, you know, in kind of the opposite way of like Milt Simons where Milt was doing so many cool things and just didn't really have, you know, the, the gallery kind of representation or didn't really have like a huge audience. Like Nate, Nate Long, on the other hand, had a, he was deeply, deeply involved. He was like a really core f- like community figure and, you know, it's still not something that's super well known, right? So it's like on either either kind of end of the prominence cycle, it just was interesting to see how even even if you're like that prominent, you could still kind of be obscured as time goes on, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a reminder that that yeah, some of these stories they're sort of forgotten and remembered and forgotten again and remembered again. Yeah, it's a cycle. But yeah, but you have also profiled um, people who are alive as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, quite a number of people. Among them, this really incredible poet, Jordan Imani Keith. How did you end up here between my fingers? A year like water in my hand like rain. I was really sort of drawn to the way that you described her work, that it's kind of blending in some ways, the power of nature, the beauty of nature Mm -hmm. and language, Mm -hmm. but also racial and social justice. What kind of strikes you about her work or your experience profiling her? I mean, I I think Jordan is so cool. I and I'm really she was so patient with me, had so many like follow up questions and was like texting her stuff. So I, I felt really so appreciative of her just like time. Um, because she is a, she's a very busy person and it's cool. She like goes up to the mountains and I just really loved just her perspective on the natural, especially like black communities, like relationship with with it. She's also someone that's like super active in in the community. She was most recently Seattle's civic poet. And she she served in that position for a while because I believe she was appointed in 2019 and it had to be extended because of the pandemic, right? And I think her work really just kind of encapsulates why it's important to have poets be really like front and center in, in everything that we do because I think that they're able to kind of touch on things like, you know, I mean, we had the protests that went on. There was this like pandemic that took the lives of a lot of really valuable people in all of our communities. And so I think that in the work that she's done, she's been able to really... I I think kind of like encapsulate and reflect that pain, but then also kind of lay out a path towards, you know, the future. Isn't that it? Each of us braced against a wind that hasn't stopped blowing. A woman who wants you to know how old she is, how long she's been waiting 
to thread the sky with this needle. I just think the, the poet's ability to reflect what's going on around us is so needed because I definitely have felt for the past three years just so lost, you know, and I think I think now I, I have space away to be able to really think about myself a lot differently and like what these past several years have meant for myself, like my family, my friends, my community, the world. And I think that like poets like Jordan are like the people who are going to be the ones to kind of lead the way in terms of just reckoning with our like selves and our soul and that kind of thing. Here we are becoming, that is what we do, bust and boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I mean, maybe there are lots of ways you could define the word civic, but that, that she's been, you know, specifically had the title civic poet, like civic poet for Seattle. But I feel like she's very much a civic poet, it seems like, in that she's she's been so engaged with the collective, you know, in her work as a poet? I mean, literally, you know, worked with Seattle Public Utilities? Yeah, well, yeah, because while during her kind of tenure here, or as civic poet, the Seattle Public Utilities commissioned her to write a poem that kind of, that was kind of about their community-centered, it's called this community-centered One Water Zero Waste Vision. Uh, and this, this poem, it's called Essential. Essential. One. Most seasons, Seattle hears voices that sound like rain drums singing. It actually won a U.S. Water Award for Outstanding Artist. And it's beautiful because it's like this ode to essential workers and specifically, you know, during the pandemic, garbage still had to be collected, right? People still needed water. Like there are all these like essential services that like, you know, as a writer, I can absolutely stay at home and still do my job. And it, it looks a little bit different. But like, if you're a garbage collector, if yeah, you work in like water treatment plants, like those are things that if they stop happening, it's not good. Like everyone's life is deeply impacted by it. And I think that, again, like Jordan's her her deep knowledge of nature and her especially her focus on water and how water is intertwined in all of our lives. The poem does such a great way of kind of connecting water and this essential work that people who work in public utilities do. And I'll read like a little bit of this poem that I included in this, which I thought was so beautiful. This is my favorite part of the poem. Um, she writes, in the morning when the blue bin rumbles, the sound is a check mark I call Tuesday. They descend from the thunder of their truck, masked. They cross my driveway. Only now I realize how much like a deity, carrying myth they are. Carrying yeah, yeah, I love that. Essential is like speaking to essential workers. So it's speaking mm -hmm. to people and people's role in the system that we've created to live together. But it's also speaking to water. Water is essential for life. <laughs> totally. I mean, absolutely essential. In fact, we will all die within days without water. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's like a lot of blending there, you know, like the nature and people and collective and the civic life and the planet. Mm -hmm. From the kitchen to the garden to the soil, from the roof to the runoff at your feet. Big picture for you, now that you have been doing this work for a little while, I was I was just wondering, what does 
the Black Arts Legacies Project mean to you personally? I mean, to me personally, I think the Black Arts Legacies Project, it's just a really important archive that we need, I think, because having a resource for anyone interested and like future generations of people that want to know more about Seattle just more generally and specifically like the black community here in Seattle i think it's like vital that we have the the written profile and and have video of people talking about their work and have these images of people that have really shaped the city, because I think, you know, the story of like Milt Simons, of Nate Long, of Jordan Amani Keith, all of them really encapsulate different areas of this city's history. And so I think Black Arts Legacies is so vital to keeping that history still alive. And I'm really excited to see the impacts of it. And I'm glad that it's there for future generations to reference. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Jazz Kaimig and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. Learn more about the whole team behind Black Arts Legacies, as well as the entire project and the upcoming live event at blackartslegacies.com. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. CrossCut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.